I, I really can't say whether if I had not been born with or developed, you know, certain diagnoses, if I wouldn't have become a writer, et cetera. But what I will say is that I am very uncreative and unproductive when I am in the throes of an episode just because I can't do anything. I am very much hindered by symptoms. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we're so excited to have Esme Weijon Wang. She's the author of the New York Times best-selling essay collection, The Collected Schizophrenias, and the novel The Border of Paradise, which was one of NPR's best books of 2016. Born in the Midwest to Taiwanese parents, Esme lives in San Francisco. She will be a keynote speaker at our Zero Mental Health Symposium in October. We are thrilled that Esme joined us for this two-part exploration of psychosis. And for this episode, we asked our friend, Jo Beth Hammond, to interview Esme. Jo Beth, or JB as we call her, works for the association, but she's also a huge Esme fan and was actually elected as a city councilor in Oklahoma City. Okay, let's get to the interview. The mental health download starts now. So Esme, thank you so much for being on the Mental Health Download podcast today. Um, reading your book, you described your first illusion coming in your mid-20s when you were working in a psychology lab and realized that everyone had been replaced by robot doubles. So my first question is, if someone who is a negative view of people with serious mental illness somehow experienced one of your delusions, how would that inform the way that you think that person would view people with serious mental illness? Um, In terms of the delusions that I was experiencing at the time, I think one thing that somebody who might have prejudices against people who have serious mental illness might find interesting about my experiences at the time was that the people I was working with at the at the lab, um, I was working at Stanford at the time, did not know that I was experiencing those particular delusions. None of my coworkers knew. I, I believe I may have eventually told my boss at some point, but I did not tell my coworkers. I didn't tell anybody that I was working directly with. I wanted to keep it secret. And so basically, um, unless I told people, nobody really knew. And so that's one thing that uh, I think may kind of dispel some of the stigmas that are um, misconceptions that people have about people who experience psychosis is that you can always tell. You you can always tell. Um, the people in my life didn't always know. Um, and so uh, in terms of the ways that um, I try to describe experiencing these delusions to people in my life, um, one thing that I say is that it's like believing something to the utmost degree and being told by everybody around you that it's not true, that what you believe is not true. So you might as well act as though you, you might as well go along to get along um, in short. And so, you know, I, I did believe that everybody around me had been replaced by doubles or robots, but there was no use in telling people other than say my psychologist and psychiatrist that I had this belief because I knew that the people 
in my life and that the people around me were telling me that, that this was not, um, not the way things were. And so uh, that is uh, something that is also really interesting about experiencing psychosis is that I don't think that this is necessarily something that everyone who lives with psychosis um, can do or chooses to do. But something that I chose to do was to smooth things out by acting as normally as I could. It sounds like um, kind of the the ways that we sort of in our general culture assume that someone experiencing psychosis might act is not always the case. So people maybe having those sorts of delusions maybe aren't always outwardly showing it is kind of what you're saying. Yes, yes. And uh, it's because of the prejudices and stigmas that uh, it's not always obvious. People might want to hide them on purpose uh, because they know that other people have prejudices and stigmas. You also mention in, in your writing that you think that genetics play a role in your me- mental illness in a, in a complicated play. And you've said that the play is always changing and the plot is hard to follow. Can you talk more about that? I know that the ways in which we talk about and learn about the role of genetics is always changing. I was studying psychology in college. I uh, was you know, uh, kind of raised on the diathesis stress model. So the idea that uh, genetics kind of set things up and then stressors kind of, you know, knock things over um, in terms of as if, you know, mental illness were some kind of domino effect. Um, So I feel as though the kind of family tree in my case of mental illness and the genetics that I've, I have um, in my system are certainly there. I grew up with a mother who um, had a lot of uh, mental illness issues, and my great aunt um, died in a mental um, institution. Um, I had a cousin um, on my mother's side who killed himself. So the genetics are an interesting thing to look at, and so people have done studies and continue to do studies that look at genetics is part of the kind of background of what causes mental illness for a very, very, very long time. Um, But what I find interesting is that it's much more complicated than, say, looking at, you know, pea plants. Um, (laughs) Like human beings are much more complicated than pea plants. And so, you know, I, I have one or two primary diagnoses as far as mental health goes, but I have a whole mess of diagnoses in total. And I have grown up with lots and lots of diagnoses that have changed over time. And uh, so I think genetics are one part of it, but diagnosis is very complicated. And so I think that the more nuanced our conversations can be, the better. Seems like in, you know, the sort of classic things that we learn in psychology class in college of it's, you know, it's nature and nurture. And we sort of seem to leave it at that and move along (laughs) Um, and and haven't really quite been able to dive into all those those nuances, at least I think from my experience kind of in the mental health advocacy world of that cultural level, maybe it's happening somewhere in a a research lab that somebody maybe five years from now will make it to us. But yeah, it seems like it's it is such a nuanced piece of of the conversation that we we don't always treat that way. Um, so speaking of 
research labs. Uh, so in your um, time at Stanford, you know, I imagine that from that you've you've obviously kind of kept up with the conversation around mental health research and um, and kind of the what the cultural conversations are about mental illness and our society. And so are there any research breakthroughs that you're excited about right now or that you know of that are on the horizon? I'm really interested in and I'm excited about the research that is happening around schizophrenia and the schizophrenias. I know that the National Institute of Mental Health funded a bunch of research about schizophrenia in recent years. And what's been really exciting to me, like on a very personal level, has been getting to meet the people who are are doing this research. While on tour in the U.S. for the collective schizophrenias, I had people in signing lines who were, you know, uh, Cedar sinai researchers um, who were doing research on schizophrenia. And it was so exciting to get to hear about their research and to hear, and to, it was just very heartening to hear that um, this research is continuing and that we're learning more about schizophrenia in particular for me, as that is an issue close to my heart. So I am just glad to know that people who do research are reading my book. Um, although yeah, I think in terms of um, not just my book, but also just staying in touch with, it's it's important to me that researcher, researchers stay in touch with the world of people who are having the lived experience and not just the, the very cut and dry uh, subjects that they have coming in and out or their subjects that are kept track of via numbers or file folders. When they came to you in those signing lines, did they have any particular insights or questions for you that came from reading your book? Um, they did not. Um, I think they were just really interested in keeping in touch with the, the more human side of schizophrenia and, yeah, just remaining in touch with that human side of um, why they were doing the research they were doing. I'm glad to hear that as well. That's um, that is very heartening. I imagine they might actually enjoy that, getting a little out of the lab and seeing how how these conversations are playing out and on the ground. So, and kind of similarly, you know, mental health professionals, counselors, psychiatrists are supposed to have a unique understanding of the people they serve. But I know in your book you kind of talk about you know some of the shortcomings maybe that when you have professionals kind of dispensing treatment, um, that there can be some shortcomings there. What are some of the things that you would want, whether it's researchers or practice clinicians doing private practice or working in nonprofits? um, What would you want them to be doing to improve their daily practice with the people they're, they're serving? So I think that the shortcomings that we talk about are just human shortcomings. You know, it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to do with being a practitioner. It just so happens that those practitioners are human and humans, uh, humans come with shortcomings. And so I'm thinking of the story that I tell in the book about going to speak at the Chinatown Mental Health Clinic and, you know, giving a, giving a talk to practitioners. And then a woman coming up to me after the talk and saying, you know, thank you so much for coming to give this talk because, you know, people come and, you know, we try to help them, but then they relapse and then they come back and then they relapse and come back and relapse and come back. And then we start to forget that they're 
that they have hopes and dreams too. And I, I think that that's, you know, a problem, but it's a very human problem. I mean, this is a very rhetorical question, but who wouldn't, you know, start to lose faith or, or start to think of somebody who keeps coming back after relapse, after relapse, um, as, as someone who maybe is hopeless or helpless or cannot get better because it's hard. It's very, very hard to remember that there is a person behind or underneath those illnesses. And so that is what I would say um, as a reminder to practitioners is just to remember, yes, these are always people with hopes and dreams. The piece you mentioned about kind of the folks that maybe practitioners, you know, see again and again and start to maybe lose hope that recovery is um, maybe possible. Um, I hear that from some of my colleagues that kind of in the culture of people practicing that sometimes there are clients that they just sort of end up seeing as untreatable and that they're wanting, you know, I've heard my colleagues express that they want to try to help change that perspective. Are there ways that maybe um, practitioners can help tease out those hopes and dreams of those people that they're working with? I think I would need a little bit more time to think (laughs) of something concrete, but what I think of immediately is just this very, very hopeless session that I had with a psychiatrist of mine and how the psychiatrist told me that there was a very low percentage that I would be able to stabilize and that I would be able to live a high functioning life again. And um, it was just such a sad session and I had such a rough year and I left the session crying and I ran into a one of the uh, security guards in the in the psychiatry departments and he saw that I was crying and he asked me if I was okay um, and I told him what had happened and he he said well you know they don't know everything and he said out of nowhere he said are you a writer and I said uh, yeah I am and he said well you know go home and write about it and uh, you'll be okay and you know, in the end, you know, I did write about it. And, and I am uh, in a lot of ways, okay. And, you know, I never know if I'll have a relapse, or if I'll be back in that very dark place that I was at that time. But at that time, that's where we thought I was, that I had an untreatable form of schizoaffective disorder, and that I would not be able to function at a higher level again. But, you know, who is to say, you know, Um, so I don't really have a concrete exercise or like steps one, two and three, but really just um, how do we ever keep the faith with anything? Kind of touching on a little bit back on the psychosis, you know, I I think even in for people who want to advocate for people with mental illness, there's still quite a bit of confusion surrounding what psychosis actually is and what it isn't. And so can you explain what psychosis is to our audience and what you would hope people can understand about it? I think the most basic description of psychosis is that it consists of hallucinations and delusions. So false sensory perceptions such as seeing things that aren't there or hearing things that aren't there and delusions or false beliefs. You know, the CIA is out to get me or I am Jesus. And then there are other symptoms that go along with things like the schizophrenia, such as catatonia or, um, you know, kind of like certain forms of agitation and so forth. But really with psychosis, it's primarily 
hallucinations and delusions. A lot of folks that I know I interact with are, you know, we'll talk about the person kind of on the corner talking to themselves, but it's not always something that is really visible to people. And I think that's something that is helpful to have have us talk about and, and kind of what your experience has been, because the sort of ability to kind of put an arm's distance between us over here that aren't experiencing that and those those people or, or whatever kind of term we might use kind of ends up othering people in a way that maybe it's the person right next to us that isn't expressing any sort of symptomatic, um, any symptoms outwardly, but is having those those delusions or those hallucinations and is just trying to manage them on their own. So yeah, that's very helpful. Um, so I know you're an avid journal keeper and you've actually built an online class based on the concept of restorative journalism called The Rawness of Remembering. Can you explain how journaling has been a key healing tool in, for your own journey? So I journal every single day. People always ask, wow, how do you like, how do you keep that habit? But for me, it's like brushing my teeth. I mean, I think I journal more regularly than I brush my teeth. Um, but um, for me, it's a way to really clear out my brain and to kind of ground and stabilize myself. And so the rawness of remembering is something that I have on my website that people can look at and purchase to learn how to do this kind of thing that I call restorative journaling. And so restorative journaling is um, a kind of journaling that's not just um, kind of rambling on the page, although I, I can definitely see the the benefit in that. But for me, restorative journaling is very much um, about doing certain concrete things that help to be healing and restorative um, to oneself, such as um, for me, there I developed this thing called like future journaling. And that that has helped when I find myself in like pre-psychotic um, states, um, you know, I'll, I'll journal um, myself into the future to help stabilize myself. Or, you know, uh, if I'm having trouble and feeling very anxious about productivity, I'll do these things. I'll make these things called uh, things I've done today lists, where instead of making a to-do list, I'll make a list of things I've done today. Um, and so I'll write down things, very basic things, like bought milk on the corner or, um, you know, washed my face and brushed my teeth, because it's very easy to forget how difficult it is to get things done when you're not feeling well. And for me, it's really important to um, keep track of the things that I have managed to get done. So yeah, that's, that's a little bit about um, journaling for me and restorative journaling. It's very neat. I really like that idea because I, I am also, I experience quite a bit of anxiety and sometimes the overwhelming nature of my to-do list is uh, <laughs> a little crushing. So it's nice to have the idea that maybe I should make a list of things I've done and how, how accomplished I've been at um, <laughs> yeah. some of those simple things that sometimes take a lot of energy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Are there any other self-care techniques that you would recommend to our audience? Yeah, self-care is so important. And I want to, I always want to remind people and reiterate that it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean buying expensive things or, you know, um, doing like sheet masks and like getting manicures, even though those can be really nice. And I am, I'm not here to tell people to not do that. Um, but, you know, 
for example, like drinking water, like remembering to stay hydrated is a really important form of self-care or remembering to get enough sleep is a good form of self-care. Just kind of um, making sure that uh, the basics are covered, you know, making sure that you are eating properly or staying in touch with the people that help you feel grounded as a form of self-care. Like I said, um, the things I did today list can be a form of self-care. Not berating yourself for not being productive enough is a form of self-care. There are just so many things that you can do for yourself that don't cost any money that can be a form of self-care. That's great. Um, So some people believe that serious mental illness somehow gives the gift of enhanced creativity. Do you feel like it's enhanced your creativity or somehow hindered it? Um, This is a really complicated conversation. (laughs) And of course, um, there's K. Wright Bill Jameson's book, Touched by Fire, which is all about uh, manic depression and creativity. And I I really can't say whether if I had not been born with or developed, you know, certain diagnoses, if I wouldn't have become a writer, etc. But what I will say is that I am very uncreative and unproductive when I am in the throes of an episode just because I can't do anything. Um, I, I am, um, I am very much hindered by symptoms when I'm not doing well. And so I think for, I think it can be really damaging to romanticize mental illness and to, to, um, romanticize having symptoms because I think, you know, when you're in the very depths of depression, for example, that's not when you're going to be very creative. (laughs) So you mentioned um, a book just there. It sounds like maybe that's not the most descriptive or the best uh, example of something that would convey your own experiences. But are there any other books or movies or anything like that that um, that do that you feel like do a wonder a good job of conveying what it's like to experience life the way you do with your illness and um, in recovery? Um, a book that I really loved and referred to often as I was working on the collective schizophrenia is, is the book The Noonday Demon by Andrew Solomon, which is about depression. It's a really, it's quite a tome. It's a very big book, but he really covers everything from the history of depression to the um, etiology and science behind depression. And he talks about his own depression, et cetera. And it's a, it's a really wonderful book. I believe it won um, the Pulitzer, either the Pulitzer or the National Book Award for nonfiction. Oh, wow. I'll have to check that out. I will be adding that to my list. Maybe <laughs> for, for uh, I'll read it over a few months or something. It sounds like it is quite in depth. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really excellent. Um, so you'll be coming to speak at the Zero Mental Health Symposium in Tulsa this October. Um, what are the the key takeaways that you would want to leave with with our audience? Yeah, so um, I uh, haven't fully prepared <laughs> the talk yet, so um, part of it will uh, will have to be a surprise for those <laughs> uh, listening to the podcast. But I know that I will be uh, telling people about a bit about my story as well as leaving some thoughts for people um, of all walks of life in terms of where they are as they uh, enter the symposium, whether they are a practitioner or, um, 
or somebody who work who works um, in a different form um, in the mental health field. So I am hoping to be able to talk both about my own experience as well as to leave some concrete uh, some concrete steps and um, takeaways for people um, who work with uh, mental health in all ways. Wonderful. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience that you haven't had the opportunity to say in this interview or um, that just gets left out of other interviews that you might might do? I do find um, the conversation about person first, um, person first descriptions of mental illness, very interesting. And I think that this is something that I would love to hear talked about more. I think in particular, the disability rights movement and the recovery movement have had kind of clashing ideas about person first description. So this is the whole um, person with bipolar disorder versus bipolar, you know, as a, as a descriptor, um, he's bipolar, or this is a bipolar person. Um, I found in speaking to a lot of people who, who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder or, you know, are disabled in, in different ways that they actually don't prefer person-first language, which is really interesting to me because I, I find that um, a lot of people who are actually not disabled but who work with disabled communities um, really kind of advocate for person-first language. So this is a conversation that I'd love to kind of engage more in and hear people talk about um, more. So uh, that, that's just kind of something that I'd like, I love um, kind of your, maybe your, your listeners to talk about and think about. Yeah. What do the folks in the disability advocacy community have, um, is there, are there specific reasons that they don't prefer that person first? Yeah, so their reasoning, um, as far as I can tell, and um, this is also, I actually also don't really prefer person-first language, although I have kind of gotten used to it because in my anti-stigma work here with the Mental Health Association of San Francisco, I was trained into using person-first language. Um, So I'm really used to it. But the reason that I've um, found that disability rights people, especially people in the autism community, um, use um, kind of the the non-person first language is that they identify very strongly with their diagnoses and so uh, feel that it's kind of a a remove to use person first language. Oh, that's interesting. That's, yeah, that's we at the Mental Health Association Oklahoma have quite a focus on person first language. So that's, that is an interesting conversation that maybe is beginning to evolve in, in a way that we also need to talk about here. So I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think that's all the questions we have for you today, Esme. So um, thank you so much for being with us. And, uh, and we can't wait to see you in October. Yes, I'm so excited to meet you all. And I've never been to Oklahoma, so I'm very excited <laughs> well, to we'll, come for the first time. Yes, we'll, we're glad that we can uh, usher you into the state. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that was a great interview with Esme. Um, And it's just really interesting to talk with someone who can so articulately or so well articulate her own experiences with um, psychosis and, and mental illness. And I think translate those experiences in a way that help 
those of us that either live with mental illness or, but maybe not psychosis, but, or are just advocates um, to maybe have a better understanding of what, what we can be doing um, and what conversations we can be having to uh, make sure that we're not stigmatizing mental illness, but also um, maybe not putting people in boxes. I think sometimes even within the mental health advocacy world, sometimes we, we, we end up putting our own selves in a box. So um, it's just really neat to hear, hear Esme's insights into that and her, her own, especially her own experiences of learning, uh, learning and developing her own techniques to recover through, through her own gifts. So excited to get to have that conversation with her today. So if you want to see Esme live, go to our website at zerosymposium.org to learn all the details about registration and our theme, Resilience, Recovery, Rethink Mental Health. Um, Esme fits so great into that theme of working on building up our own resiliency and, and rethinking how we uh, talk about mental health in our society. So I'll just leave you with these words. Go do good things.